This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's the centenary of the Russian Revolution, an event that shaped the course of the 20th century. The question of how and whether to disentangle Russian workers' collective aspirations for socialism from what followed under Stalin has been the subject of a raft of books and commentaries from various positions reaching rather different conclusions, many of them released this year to mark the anniversary. The new issue of Jacobin, The First Red Century, is the latest contribution to the debate, and honestly, this is the first time that I've ever thought much about it. My development as a leftist began as a teenager during the anti-corporate globalization movement, which witnessed mass protests against international financial institutions like the WTO, IMF, and World Bank. A striking repudiation of the 1990s conventional wisdom that neoliberalism was both permanent and inevitable. From there, I was active in the anti-war movements when such movements existed, and developed much of my thinking about socialism by studying the history and interacting with the present of Latin American social movements and insurrection. I was part of a generation of socialists who, for the first time in the modern history of American socialism, did not look to the Soviet Union and debates about it to define their politics. But thinking through the Russian experience still matters, and I'm glad that I'm finally doing so. The Bolsheviks marked the first successful effort at socialist revolution, and their triumphs and failures must be grappled with. My guest today is Jacobin editor Baskar Sankara, who wrote an essay on the revolution and its aftermath in the latest issue. 
asking how we should understand the October Revolution and what followed. Before we get rolling, we met our year-end goal of 700 supporters on Patreon.com. So first, thank you for making this show possible. We truly can't do it without you. But we are still raising more money to not only put this show on solid financial footing, but also to ultimately invest funds in improving our guests' audio. In other words, if you listen to this show, we still need your support. You can make that happen at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, thanks. Here's the show. Bhaskar Sunkara, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. You know, I, I assumed I would have got the invite sooner, but, you know, I guess it's... What, what episode is this? Is this the episode? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, this is a Jacobin podcast, and all my listeners, I think, are just like, where has Bhaskar been? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right, that's right. I, I, I don't listen to uh, to your your one anyway. I listen, listen to the Suzy Weissman one. That one's nice. Um, <laughs> uh, occasionally the behind the news side, hey, one, that's good. This is kind of like the filler, you know. It's like you know you stick around for um, for for Jeopardy, kind of turn off your TV set five minutes into Wheel of Fortune. You're a busy guy, and I wouldn't want you to waste your time. Uh, but I'm glad you're doing so today. So I understand that 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 Jacobin is, according to the internet, supposed to be run by people of certain socialist tendencies. But for the record, I had no clue really what a Menshevik or SR was until I read your essay. That's I mean, I think that's probably a good thing that that probably has helped your, you know, your development, your social life, everything else. Um, you know, I, for one, uh, you know, kind of built my politics, and my engagement with the left, like largely around learning about these debates, trying to apply them today, thinking through these historical questions. So I think people kind of come from the left in different um, in different ways. Like, like your, your beginnings were, were what, like um, the anti-war movement or kind of around them? One of my earliest political memories is watching the anti-WTO protests in Seattle via indie media and then getting super involved in anti-IMF World Bank and anti-FTA organizing in D.C. and Quebec City? So I encountered the left when I was, like, like or socialist ideas, when I was in the, like, maybe seventh grade, um, or maybe somewhere between seventh and, and eighth grade. And for me, a lot of it was around, um, so at the time I was, um, you know, I was, like, 2001, 2002. Um, and at the time... Um, a lot of my engagement was through uh, reading, like, the Deutscher trilogy on Trotsky, um, the Deutscher three-part biography of Trotsky, through reading kind of, like, a lot of historical pieces. You know, I read about the Spanish Civil War, like, you know, kind of, like, um, like amassing myself in kind of history, which I liked, and kind of learning more about the history of the left and, and these ideas. And simultaneously, um, you know, at the time, was obviously, uh, you know, uh, even a staunch like anti-identitarian as myself. You can't deny that it was like a difficult time to be, you know, brown in the United States right after 9/11. So like I kind of like was, um, you know, drawn towards uh, the anti-war movement and those kind of things as like 
the real parts of my um, political engagement. Like the first time I went to a big protest, it was an anti-war protest. Um, but it was almost like two lives. Like on the one hand, I was, um, you know, thinking about day-to-day reforms. You know, I kind of like John Edwards, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever. Um, and I was going to anti-war um, uh, stuff. Um, and, you know, strongly kind of had a anti almost an anti-imperialist, like a harder left than just like regular pro-peace anti-war uh, sensibility, but then, but vaguely kind of like social democratic way of thinking about things. And then um, on the other hand, I the, was, the whole John, the whole John Edwards uh, to America's thing America's, did, yeah. did um, stick out so, amongst the, the rest of the 2004 people. Though in 2004, you know, I think Dick Gephardt was the real representative of the American organized working class and that he wasn't in the AFL-CIO kind of candidate. Yeah. Yeah. He was like the old school, like part of the Democratic House block that opposed Clinton on NAFTA, that sort of wing. Yeah. The old like kind of like Humphrey-esque, um, I, I guess, or or maybe like John like Sweeney, who actually at the time just tells you something about DSA's um, evolution, you know, Sweeney and not radical at all. FLCIO chair, I was actually a DSA member um, at one point, I think throughout the 80s and 90s. So the organization really changed. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it was kind of like two. What about Nader? I forgot. 2000 Nader was, was huge for, for me. Oh, that might have, you might have been too, too much of a baby. Yeah. Yeah, I was too young for 2000 Nader. I mean, I generally supported him as like a nine-year-old just because like, <laughs> the same reason I supported Ross Perot is like a six-year-old. Um, just, <laughs> just because, you know, you root for the underdog, the eccentric, you know, the, the it was kind of like alternative. You know, I was probably like listening to R.E.M. and, you know, kind of vaguely sympathetic to Ralph Nader. That was me at 10. Um, but uh, but yeah, so like I, I kind of combined this. And now that you're uh, 15, tell me about your uh, where you stand now. Uh, yeah, right now I am. <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, I just have, I want to cut through the divisiveness, you know, like Lincoln. Lincoln Chafee seemed like a nice guy, you know, um, but. But in a way, for me, like always, it was like this kind of like deep intellectual and historical engagement with the far left, with Marxism, was juxtaposed to like trying to do these day to day things. And it was only later on, um, like the, towards the end of high school or whatever, that I kind of found a democratic socialist tradition that I thought did a good job of melding together, um, like it actually a relevant uh, fight for kind of reforms and contextualize those reforms. But I, I always kind of, um, I, I was kind of a Russian revolution, you know, kid though, you know, and, and when I was 18, I joined like the editorial board of new politics, like an old, like New York left publication that, that comes out of this kind of, uh, uh independent socialist tradition. And, you know, these debates were always kind of essential to my political development, even though I kind of wondered often like why, yeah, well, let's let's dive into your your essay. It first and foremost, I think, addresses the conventional wisdom that Stalinism was an inevitable outgrowth of Bolshevism, and you do fault Bolsheviks for many many things. But you write that what ultimately unfolded was a tragedy, and tragedies don't need villains. What did you mean by that? I think part of it is, uh, you know, I actually changed it to an epigraph to the entire issue instead of using it in my actual um, my actual um, piece. But the issue begins with a quote from um, from Victor Serge, and the quote's um, 
uh, reads, you know, it's often said that the germ of all Stalinism was in Bolshevism at, at its beginning. And Serge actually said, you know, he doesn't really object to that. But what he says is that Bolshevism contained many, many other germs, you know, a, a germ of democracy, the kind of like great enthusiasm of the first years of the you know, first socialist revolution. Um, and he says, like, to judge a living man by the, the death germs, um, you know, that you find in his autopsy, you know, kind of ignores the other um, the other, you know, germs, the other the other parts of its, its being. So I, I do think, obviously, you can't say that they're completely disconnected, right? If Lenin directly preceded Stalin um, as the leader of the, the Bolshevik Party, the leader of the Soviet Union, you can't say that there was nothing that Lenin did as far as its short-term you know, decisions, as far as how the, um, uh, the new state was set up that didn't play a role in the... Um, uh, what Stalin, you know, the, the really deep, you know, terror that Stalin unleashed um, later. But on the other hand, um, it's kind of a very ahistorical way to think about things to say that the Bolsheviks were from the beginning, like proto totalitarian or, or whatnot. So uh, primarily um, in the first part of the piece, what I was trying to do is reject this kind of Cold War interpretation of the Bolshevik party. Uh, reject um, the idea that the Bolshevik um, party was from the beginning um, destined to be this authoritarian, um, you know, force. And I think part of it um, is you know, looking at the way this party actually functioned. So Lenin had 45 articles rejected from Pravda um, in the 19. 19- um, 10, <laughs> between 1912 and, and 1914. So you can't imagine in any organization that happened. I- as someone with freelance uh, experience, I my heart goes out to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you could imagine if, like, you know, Bernie Sanders writing for an R Revolution like newsletter or something, like, ended up getting rejected forty five times in two years. <laughs> it's just like, obviously, during that span of time, he got you know uh, like over a hundred articles published. But you know, part of that is is the spirit of debate and contestation that cut through this party. Um, besides, for a brief period. Um, after the um, 1905 revolution, when the party was under a tremendous amount of uh, legal pressure, um, you know, obviously it was always underground, but a lot of repression. Both the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks kind of, you know, bunkered in and changed some of their internal operation. But throughout most of its, its uh, pre-war um, history, the uh, Bolshevik party was incredibly um, democratic, and this despite being um, an underground party. So I want to reject this uh, idea. I also want to situate the Bolshevik Party, and this follows the arguments of Lars Lee and others. The Bolshevik Party was really not um, a uh, exceptional, special, you know, party. It wasn't created to be a party of professional, hardened revolutionaries. It was created to try to mimic, in many ways, the good parts of what the German Social Democratic Party was doing in Germany to conditions in Russia. So the German Social Democratic Party, for a lot of its history, was actually also a completely underground party. And then even throughout its kind of golden era, in the early 20th century, um, it was under a lot of legal restrictions because um, Germany was still a semi-authoritarian um, you know, state. And you know, it wasn't an absolutist monarchy the way Russia was, but it, it was, wasn't a full-fledged um, democracy. So the idea was to try to create this party that had organic links to workers 
And why wouldn't you look at the largest workers' party in the world? So Lenin saw uh, Karl Kotsky, one of the main intellectuals um, of the German uh, Social Democratic Party, and kind of at the time considered the Pope, the Pope of uh, Marxism. Um, like the Russians were his most loyal disciples, and they were trying to adapt and shift their tactics uh, just to Russian conditions, but they were, it was largely within this context. So I was trying to break both a myth that was sustained in the um, Cold War on both sides of it, right? Because the West had every reason to portray the Bolsheviks as like ruthless, disciplined, um, like professional revolutionaries. And some parts of the the um, the left, or at least the, the Soviet aligned kind of like left, had reasons to portray the party that way too. Like it was so distinct, the set of ideas were so perfect that we can't change them because like, you know, this is like, you know, scripture brought from on, on high and it, it led to the first successful socialist revolution and so on. Okay, before we move on though, I want to... Um... Just briefly, like we obviously can't cover the entire sweep of the Russian Revolution here, but just a brief timeline and a brief sort of glossary, an explanation of the the key historical events in the Russian Revolution and the key actors, like who the Bolsheviks' contemporaries are, so that listeners know who we're talking about as we get deeper into the discussion. Basically, when we talk about the Russian Revolution, we're really talking about three revolutions. We're talking about um, 1905, which gave birth to the Soviet, um, and also which kind of put Russian radicalism on the map. So there was like reform movements, and it was initially sparked uh, in January 1905 by a much more moderate kind of reform uh, movement, um, one with kind of a dubious um, um, leadership. And um, from there, though, like the um, movement took on kind of dynamics of its own in relation with Russian um, uh, repression um, from, from the Tsar. So um, um, basically what you saw there was a mass uprising. The Soviet was created, which was kind of a rump like workers parliament. It was made up of representatives and delegates from factory committees, um, from other segments of, of Russian society. But it, the idea was kind of you know, this is going to help coordinate the general strike, strike activity in in, um, in Petrograd, uh, where it started. And um, and this body kind of um, came to be saw by socialists as the first real organ of, like, real authentic workers' democracy. So, you know, this was in a country without a functioning parliament, with like, the absolute state, but it was qualitatively different than uh, the Western representative like kind of bourgeois parliament that they saw um, elsewhere. So uh, 1905 was drowned out in a lot of uh, bloody repression. Um, and the promises that the Tsar made as far as reforms, uh, that won over the more moderate segments of the, the opposition to him, uh, never really get enacted. But it does make... And that's the, the more liberal bourgeois opposition that he sort of buys off? With modest uh, reforms? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good way to describe them. But like the cadets and others um, are kind of are kind of part of this opposition. Um, and both the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks at the time like are relatively close together. If anything, the Bolsheviks um, were a bit more skeptical about the 1905 revolution, and especially the Soviets at first in 1905. It took Lenin um, to actually... Uh, push them in the direction of engagement with the the Soviets, but the Mensheviks kind of had deeper roots at the time. And the figure of Leon Trotsky is really important. Trotsky, at the age of just 26, um, uh, briefly becomes chair of the um, 
um, of the, the Soviet St. Petersburg. So Trotsky is neither Menshevik nor Bolshevik, but he's uh, respected in both camps. And this figure of Trotsky, you know, kind of um, takes this experience of 1905, and he furthers this theory of permanent um, revolution, the idea that in Russia, instead of waiting for a bourgeois revolution to happen, a bourgeois revolution that would bring about a democratic republic, instead, the revolution from below for democratic demands and for further socialist demands uh, would happen as a result of the activity of uh, workers and peasants. So this is the time as a break from both Bolshevik and Menshevik um, orthodoxy as far as, um, you know, whether the revolution will kind of progress in neat stages or whether kind of you could skip ahead. And Trotsky in many ways, I think, was, you know, was vindicated by what would happen. But the main consequence of this is not only bringing the idea of the Soviet um, to life, it's also turning the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks into a mass force. So tens of thousands of people join both both um, organizations. Uh, they, the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, by the way, first come out of the same organization, um, the Russian Social Democratic um, Labor Party. Both Bolshevik and Menshevik, you know, there's gradations of thought between them. You could say that throughout all the way up until October 1917, um, the people, let's say, on the right of the Bolshevik Party and the left of the Mensheviks, like, agree more than they disagree, probably could be in the same organization. There was attempts at various times of, like, regrouping them back together. Um, but the split happened over largely over minor differences. And the difference between the party... Only, party that sounds familiar. Really, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But, you know, the differences in the parties only become really apparent uh, largely April 1917 and October 1917. So... Like often the irony is like people who use on the left today use Menshevik as a, a slur or like considerably to the right of like an actual revolutionary force with a with a, a base <laughs> in the working class, which is you know what the Mensheviks were. Um, and even Lenin like has a lot of respect till his dying days for you know a few segments of the Menshevik, for uh, particularly Martov, like a leader on the left of the the Mensheviks and. You know, um, who Lenin, makes a very prescient appearance in in your essay? Yes, he does. While Martov was sick and was was kind of in exile or, or in Germany in 1920, um, Lenin uh, decreed that you know the, the Soviet Union should pay for his medical expenses and whatever else. So so Lenin is known for being quite you know aggressive, uh, vindictive towards his foes. Like always had that soft spot to Martov up until you know the end of Martov's uh, life. Jumping ahead, so, you know, the, yeah, bring the us second... up to the February. Yeah, the second revolution, the February Revolution. The February Revolution was incredibly, you know, spontaneous. It, it um, happened um, on International Women's Day. Uh, was kind of the initial spark. Women textile workers, um, you know, started a demonstration, a strike, and it spread like wildfire through both um, um, Petrograd and also through Moscow. And, you know, within a week of the demonstrations uh, sparking off um, in February, um, old style, you know, the, the um, Julian calendar, um, February 23rd um, and March 1st, you know, the star just was forced to abdicate. I mean, it just was the state legitimacy was that was that low. It was the result of, you know, Russian losses, which are quite staggering in World War One, just the sense of kind of anger and, and bitterness and the Tsar just really had no legitimacy in any segment of the population. Even the liberal bourgeoisie, 
they didn't necessarily want a very radical revolution to topple him, but they wanted uh, dramatic reforms. And when it seemed like the reforms were impossible, they kind of just decided, all right, we'll just, you know, we'll see what happens. Withdraw our support. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the revolution was really celebrated across the political spectrum. In the West, for example, you know, there was hopes in the mainstream press that now uh, liberated from uh, from Tsarism, uh, World War One would finally be, you know, a, a war um, of democracy against like German um, and Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman autocracy. After this revolution, the Soviets um, reform, and uh, the Soviets reforming just very quickly and spontaneously within this week. Um, you know, this time it doesn't include just workers; it also includes soldiers uh, for the first time. And they're still the organ of like working class power. And they're largely under control of um, the Mensheviks, which are, you know, representatives largely of the Russian uh, working class, and um, SRs, like socialist revolutionaries, who are, in fact, you know, more like populist representatives of um, disproportionately the Russian um, peasantry. These Soviets basically decide that they're not going to seize power for themselves. Instead, they work with this new. Um, um, a provisional government that's being formed uh, by which is, liberal which forces. Is, it's led by liberal forces, but it does incorporate some uh, segments of the socialist left. Well, increasingly later on, at the very beginning, um, uh, it, it's basically just liberal um, forces. And the idea is um, they would let the liberal forces actually conduct their bourgeois opposition, uh, bourgeois revolution, and they would be kind of like a loyal opposition of some type to it, right? They would uh, push them on certain issues. They would represent workers' interests. Uh, but fundamentally, they were ceding uh, control of the, the state over. Um, and I think most Russians at the time are kind of, you know, they're willing to, to let this happen. And they also, even though people want peace, they don't want to give up massive territorial concessions to the Germans either, you know? Because Russia um, had been had been losing pretty bad they on, had its, been losing on, the, on its the war western and, frontier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They had been basically losing the, the war and and Russia was an inferior military, you know, power to the, the Germans in every way. Um, and and this was kind of unexpected because going into the war, Russia had the largest um, uh, land army in the in, in the world. I think there was a lot of um, a lot of high hopes initially. So basically, over the course of 1917, um, workers uh, become and through their organ, the Soviets become more and more discontent with the promise of the February Revolution going unfulfilled. So there's it is quite a sweeping revolution. There's a lot of rights enacted on paper and whatnot. But the core demands for kind of peace, for um, some degree of stability, for um, all these other things are not are not met. So over time, the Soviets demand more and more uh, power. These demands largely come from below. There's spontaneous um, strikes. Soldiers are just telling their officers, you know, we're we're not going to fight anymore because there's tons of mutinies. There's kind of these things are developing. Um, Workers are seizing factories, sometimes directly from their owners, sometimes like dormant factories. Peasants are are taking, you know, uh, plots of land from um, for the historic superiors. You know, all these things are happening. So it unleashes um, the kind of the, the the safety valve that was Tsarism, like all the pressures building up, and then finally, you know, it 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 explodes. 
and you can't just immediately, you know, put the cap back on it. And that's kind of what the provisional government was trying to do with the support of like large segments of, of the, the SRs and the, the Mensheviks, because they're really trying, and even segments of the Bolshevik party were, um, let's just say they weren't quite where the Mensheviks were, but people like Kamenev, like Stalin, um, they were not calling for an immediate um, revolution. They kind of thought the provisional government was going to be around for a while and the Bolshevik role was kind of be a loyal opposition. So the, 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 the difference between them and a lot of the Mensheviks were, you know, pretty, pretty minor. And you write that it's these, it's these larger political events, this gap between the newfound rights that people can, political rights that people can exercise without fear of czarist repression but the lack of sort of substantive fulfillment of, of of deeper political and economic demands that just starts really pushing events on the ground ahead out of any organized political factions control and these are these are changes that the bolsheviks ultimately benefit from but they're not actually driving yes exactly um and I, you know i mean they are driving to the stand up at the rent and file level like Bolshevik propaganda is playing a role, right? And Bolshevik organizing uh, is playing a role. But yeah, it's not as simple as Bolsheviks alone, a small minority is kind of like, riling up people. Um, it was it was much more organic than, um, than that. So um, still, the Bolshevik stance isn't particularly radical until um, April 1917. That's when Lenin returns. In the classic narrative on the left, it's this idea that like, Lenin returns with his April theses, and Trotsky uh, returns around then from um, from exile. Trotsky was actually in um, hanging out in in New York in the Bronx, um, you know, uh, <laughs> when the when the February Revolution um, uh, sparked off. So the classic narrative: he returns, he has his ideas, and the masses just follow him on this more radical line and drop the kind of. The um, Stalin and Kamenev had been running Pravda since March 1917, the more moderate line of Stalin and Kamenev. But, you know, in fact, the Bolshevik Party, like I was saying before, wasn't a monolith, right? Lenin had to win people over through argumentation, through, you know, it was a slow process. It doesn't really, you know, up until the eve of the Bolshevik Revolution, there's still voices that are, that are um, don't think seizing power, you know, immediately makes, makes sense within the party. So, you know, there's radical voices like Lenin, like Bukharin, Trotsky, still not a Bolshevik, joins in, in July, you know, becomes, um, you know, on the left of this, this party calling for, for insurrection. But, you know, it's a process. But, um, you know, the main thing is Lenin um, is, is able to come up with these demands, not just whole cloth out of his, his brain, like all power of the Soviets, you know, land bread peace. <laughs> but because the, the Bolshevik uh, party actually has really deep working class roots. So they're in every working class district. Their organizers are in every factory. They're all around and they're actually hearing the discontent and they're hearing the demands at the base. And, and their numbers kind of, have exploded since February. Yeah, their numbers continue to, to, to grow along with other you know radical parties. But they have this, this really um, deep uh, base in the um, industrial working class. And um, they're able to listen to the demands and the discontent. And like, it's not like they're just way ahead of the people, right? And they're just like dropping dropping knowledge and, you know, all, everyone's just joining, right? Or nor is it just a coup, right? This, this is where they build their, their popular legitimacy. And in many ways, the uh, Russian uh, workers and uh, 
are way ahead of the Bolshevik leadership in that um, the, there was an insurrection in July, the July days kind of crisis, um, which was kind of led not not by the Bolshevik leadership that, if anything, clamped down and, and wanted unarmed demonstrations. But, you know, Bolshevik rank-and-file um, uh, workers, you know, tried to turn it into a proper insurrection in July. And as a result, you know, the party faced... Um, uh, faced uh, tons of repression. At this point, um, uh, NSR, um, Kerensky, uh, kind of the right wing of the, the SR, but NSR, um, is is part of the provisional government, later becomes a leading figure in the provisional government. So over time, the provisional government itself incorporates more socialist kind of voices. But, um, but the the Bolshevik um, legitimacy, as far as like being able to take power doesn't really happen um, until later in the year. So in August, following the chaos of the July days, which we now know was not the result of, you know, the Bolshevik leadership, but just kind of a, a real spontaneous uprising, uh, the right is struggling to reassert control because everybody can see that the provisional government isn't stable, doesn't have popular legitimacy. The question is, what's going to happen after it? Um, so the right has their, their turn. And uh, there's a, a coup attempt, and Kerensky doesn't actually have any recourse to defeat this coup. So the Bolsheviks once again become legal. Bolshevik workers, railroad workers, play a big role in defeating the August um, coup. Um, you know, uh, then after that, in September, there's kind of a chance where um, it's clear um, after the the defeat of the August, um, you know, right wing coup that the provisional government doesn't have any legitimacy, the Menshevik and SR still run the Soviets, uh, largely. So they could, at that point, perhaps try to create an all-socialist kind of like Soviet government that would actually fulfill the promises of February. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be like on a basis of a socialist program, but on some sort of democratic Republican program, uh, then, you know, the achievement of, of peace and other, other basic uh, demands. They basically say no, because they think, you know, this is a role for the liberal bourgeoisie. They still have tons of divisions over the war. Um, there's parts of the um, kind of even the, the kind of populist movement in, in Russia that um, that is supportive of the war on the right Mensheviks align with kind of the war should continue, but it should be defensive without annexation. So in other words, they didn't want a war of conquest, but they just. You know, I had all sorts of reasons why they didn't think it was unrealistic. They thought it was unrealistic uh, to end the war. Um, so they basically say no to power. And in this context, um, the uh, Bolsheviks get a majority in the um, Petrograd Soviet. So in kind of a very nice, it almost feels like it was like written as a work of fiction, like almost 12 years um, exactly after he um, you know, first became at the age of 26. Um, the uh, chair of the Petrograd, you know, Soviet, um, or the St. Petersburg uh, Soviet, um, uh, Trotsky is now uh, once again the chair as a Bolshevik um, of the, the Petrograd, um, you know, Soviet. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. 
One that you might like is Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy by Lynn Siegel. Why are we so obsessed by the pursuit of happiness? With new ways to measure contentment, we are told that we have a right to individual joy. But at what cost? In an age of increasing individualism, we have never been more alone and miserable. But what if the true nature of happiness can only be found in others? In Radical Happiness, leading feminist thinker Lynn Siegel argues that we have lost the art of radical happiness, the art of transformative, collective joy. She shows that it is only in the revolutionary potential of coming together that we can come to understand the powers of flourishing. Radical happiness is a passionate call for the rediscovery of the political and emotional joy that emerge when we learn to share our lives together. Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy by Lynn Siegel, out now from Verso Books. It brings us to this critical meeting that you write about where the Bolsheviks call for an all-Soviet government and constituent assembly and the right SRs and Mensheviks walk out. You write that Trotsky, at this point a leader of the Bolshevik left, was, uh, you know, a great order and all these other things, and but also tragically overconfident in the ordination of history. What did they expect to come to pass at this juncture? And what ultimately did? I think Trotsky was kind of angry that uh, Martov and even the other lab Bolsheviks that shared similar views on the war and other things um, didn't see their... Um, their revolution is anything but a but a coup, and like I said, I think the history, the truth of history, is somewhat you know in between, where it it really was um, not as spontaneous as uh, the February Revolution, but it really was a surge of energy and popular enthusiasm from below. Uh, the only thing that I do question is again the um, how wide the support was, um, not the not the depth of the support. Um, in that, you know, it's hard to build a worker state in a country where the workers are extreme, you know, minority. But yeah, I mean, I, so Trotsky's line was, was, um, as I'm kind of doing this from the top of my head, was the rising of the masses of the people requires no justification, uh, to, to, um, uh, Martov. And Martov and the left Mensheviks basically want a proposal where they're like, uh, like, let's just like share power, right? Let's just have like the, um, different progressive kind of factions like the the left-wing SRs, um, his branch of the Mensheviks, the Bolsheviks, like maybe even bringing in the other um, uh, Mensheviks, share power in an all-socialist government and enact reforms and end the war and do the rest. Um, the real reason why this wasn't viable is because the rest of the Mensheviks and the rest of the SRs left. So in other words, the, the mainstream of the Mensheviks, or a lot of them, and Martov represented a large kind of opposition within the Mensheviks. Um, and the SRs were like, you need to have bourgeois liberals um, in the government. And the entire point of the because revolution Because you can't was, leapfrog over historical stages of development as they are, were uh, understood. The SRs wasn't even that clear. But yeah, something like that. It wasn't just a theoretical question. It was also just kind of their idea of like what it took to create a stable national government and everything, everything else, right? Um, so... The whole point was that the liberals have already proven that they were unable to fulfill that kind of like task, right? And the Mensheviks and the SRs already refused to take power when they had their last chance to do so in September. Um, 
And I think that was a decisive thing, so we shouldn't over overstate it. But it is, um, but, you know, obviously Trotsky's um, view and response kind of meant that the Bolsheviks would just be in power with a minority of, of left SRs, basically SRs um, that supported um, the, the Bolshevik, um, you know, uprising. So, you know, it, it uh, you know, the the scene that I lay out at the end, you know, it's a story that's been told um, before. I, I added an extra detail that, that I think is told less, but... Um, basically, Martov, um, you know, he he leaves after Trotsky's address with his uh, with the other left Bolsheviks, and he's confronted. You know, Martov's a widely popular figure, even among young Bolsheviks and and others. So he's confronted by a young Bolshevik worker who says, you know, um, you know, basically denounces him like, what well, you're you're kind of the the good Menshevik. You know, you guys are, are the good ones. Why would you abandon the worker revolution? Uh, at this crucial moment. And Martov, you know, stops before the exit, turns to him and says, you know, one day you'll understand uh, the crime in which you're taking part. And that worker um, was actually killed almost exactly to the day at, um, 20 years later in a Stalinist purge. So, you know, I think that, that it is just, I mean, the level of kind of like drama here, like I said, it's like almost like, you know, like fiction, right? Like the kind of like Trotsky, um, Returning triumph. China Mieville figured years. that out. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That that is you know uh, that is that is true. It's great. It's a great book. So so I try to sprinkle in a little bit um, of that. But you know the initial thing is the Bolsheviks upon taking power is are not trying to institute kind of um, a radical socialism without markets, without anything, without just worker control. They kind of try to institute a mixed economy with like lots of state kind of. Uh, some state coordination and other things, but kind of like for the foreseeable future until there's revolution in the the West, because I can see what they're doing is a holding action. They're basically going to spark things, and then the the spark will lead to a fire, which will spread across Europe, and the more advanced states in Europe will take power and create the material conditions for socialism that don't exist in Russia. Because um, no one believed that this that would be possible for Russia to do on its own. In fact, the very idea that Russia could even help spark revolution in the more developed West was already sort of turning things on its head a little, but by no means did they think that that Russia could do it alone without without Germany, England, and whatnot. Yeah, or worst case, it would just use a positive example for like the next generation that will actually be the ones to usher in the worker revolution to look at, just like they look back at the Paris Commune you know, and all these other kind of fleeting attempts at, at, at um, worker control of the dictatorship of the proletariat. But for them, the dictatorship of the proletariat didn't even mean a one-party state. It was their intent to, you know, work with parties that accepted the legitimacy of their revolution. Um, so they ended up working with the left SRs that had a base in the peasantry. The only reason really why the left SRs left the coalition um, was because they um, opposed, you know, um, a peace talks and how concessionary Lenin, you know, was to the Germans just because Lenin knew how weak the Russian position was um, and kind of resorted to a campaign of armed terrorism against the Bolsheviks. So it's hard to it's hard to be in a coalition partner, a coalition when your partner <laughs> is, um, you know, resorting to armed terrorism against you. The, the tragedy that I talk about is just kind of like a lot of these decisions the Bolsheviks made in the micro instances, you could say, were... Uh, justified or understandable. Um, nobody kind of had the the whole plot. You know, it'd be a much simpler and less interesting story if 
from the beginning, the Bolsheviks were just these um, totalitarians and wanted to impose this on society by any means necessary. But in fact, they were just responding to, to events in the worst situations possible and make these micro decisions and, you know, and, and things went wrong. It brings to mind the, the well-known line from Marx's 18th Brumaire, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. They might not have felt like it was a nightmare at the time, but those were sort of the, there were, there were these, there were these constraints put into place. And it seems like what you're saying is we have to think about the Bolsheviks through, through those constraints in some way, without, without forgiving their errors entirely. Also, just remembering that because they were first, like, I think you could forgive a lot of the errors. In other words, like they were, what, what is that or is that, you know, every generation of movement that tried to take state power after uh, really um, kind of followed their, their model in different conditions. Um, you know, like, and, and I think that was a big, um, the big mistake. And also I think beyond that, there was, there was certain aspects of the thought that I think contributed to the, the, the situation that the Bolshevism ended up in. Um, you focus on what seems to be like a, a, an over, well, with Trotsky, you say overconfidence in the ordination of history. And then with Lenin, you say sort of a naivete about what, what actually exercising state power would, would look like. Yeah, I think there's this idea that, you know, a lot of the power of the state, the coercion, the ugly parts of the state, the violence of it, uh, comes from the fact that, uh, you know, a, a tiny uh, minority um, is governing over a great majority. Um, and his logic was as simple as, you know, this is the, the nature of the state, the nature of the state is class oppression. We're going to create a worker state, a worker and peasant state, which is going to still have some of those mechanisms of oppression and coercion. But um, they'll affect a lot fewer people, uh, and it'll just be a temporary thing. Um, and I, and there's, in other words, it's logically coherent. Um, but I, you know, it just didn't actually uh, jive with the kind of messiness of rule, and also the fact that, you know, um, a lot of disagreements um, aren't reducible to kind of abstract class, you know, interests. You know, there's there's a need to mediate between those differences. There's all sorts of political debates that. Um, that I think we need to think seriously about what the correct mechanism, even at the political level, uh, should be for them. So in other words, should it just be like Soviet democracy? Are we just asking for forms of, of, of democracy in that form? Is there a role for a parliament under socialism? Like, do socialist um, uh, states need bedrock um, kind of negative freedoms and rights? Um, you know, what is a socialist? Uh, is there an independent socialist theory of jurisprudence? Like all these questions, I think, are, are relevant. And all, a lot of them were addressed, or at least there were debates within um, the Bolshevik Party over these very issues. There was debates within the party about, uh, about state overreach, about whether the Cheka was acting without, um, the secret police was acting with, uh, without uh, enough constraints, um, without enough oversight. You know, all these debates happen. One of the problems was under the pressure of famine, under the pressure of civil war, um, the mechanisms for having these debates both within the party, um, which happened later, but especially early on in civil society, uh, got stifled. And also in this context, you know, people are exhausted. They don't want more revolution. They don't want more war. They don't want 
you know, a situation of like scarcity. They they kind of just wanted stability. And I think this led to the conditions you had in Russia um, after the Civil War in the 1920s, which is this um, rebounding economy. So you, you have the, the – uh, my book is quite so, – uh, I'm sorry, my uh, – uh, it's basically a book-length thing. Uh, <laughs> my answer is quite soft in the new economic um, policy and its like achievements, but you know that was combined with like like a ossification um, uh, and the kind of authoritarianism um, in the Soviet state. But it's a very different kind of authoritarianism. You know, it's a kind of authoritarianism that you know it exists, but to be honest, it's, it's the best government that the Russian people have had in, you know, in a very, very long time. Right. And, um, and things are better and prosperous and whatnot. So I, you know, I think even, I think often, um, let's say Trotskyists and other traditions look at the early period of, of Soviet rule, the first like year, year and a half. And are like, this is true worker democracy and true, um, kind of power from below. And this is the model. And after that, they try to explain why things go wrong. Or, and then, then they describe the NEP period in the mid-20s, like things, you know, still going wrong. And then Stalin is things like like going completely uh, completely wrong. You know, it's kind of another another break. The way I, I see it is often like, you know, I um, have a little bit more sympathy for that middle period. Um, uh, then the break kind of leaping into Stalinism, I think, a lot of it was a mix of not just um, kind of Stalin's totalitarian instincts or mind or whatever, but largely the result of like really bad policy. You know, I think um, like, like Stalin's response to um, certain food shortages and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it wasn't like price adjustments and other stuff. It was like pretty indiscriminate. Um, uh, terror and collectivization, all these other things that were counterproductive. Uh, um, I think if you could abstract away from moral and ethical dimensions and you could justify the five-year plans, um, certainly Russia needed a robust industrial policy to develop when it was clear that it was going to be isolated as the world's only socialist state. But um, but the collectivization part of it, which which really, you know, I don't think we should downplay, you know, it led to um, over six million, you know, um, uh, deaths between um, the famine and the aftermath. And it seems like that, even though you're that you're arguing that it's not this inevitable germ either from the Bolsheviks or the NEP period, that that the lack of clear protections for people and both individuals and collectivities vis-a-vis the state, while it didn't make Stalinism inevitable, it what it did make inevitable is that there would be a dearth of uh, like countervailing forces to check a murderous authoritarian right. like Stalin if he did emerge as he did. Yeah, and here's where I draw on the, the Trotskyist tradition too in that, you know, I think the real question is like bureaucracy, right? And this is a question in the trade union movement. It's a question in social democracies, um, Scandinavian social democracies. It's a question in, you know, obviously the, a much greater extreme in, in Russia in the 1920s where, you know, conditions are such that there's a group of people, a layer of people, who have uh, a disconnect from their popular support base, who have a certain set of interests, who have an interest in a certain set of growth priorities and stability that aren't always in line with um, those of their, their mass constituency. Right? Sometimes they could be distinct and different in their interests, but they can still govern broadly in a way that um, 
that the popular base supports. Like, let's say in a place like Cuba, right? Like, I think Cuba is a pretty good, you know, state, even though it's not democratic. It has a large bureaucracy and whatnot, because largely the bureaucracy, you know, does serve the basic needs of, you know, the people as far as like healthcare, education, and so on. But, but the main thing is like unchecked, um, especially in really bad conditions. Um, you know, this can lead to a lot of uh, a, a lot of um, issues, a lot of um, um, the, you know, word deformed is used a lot um, in um, By Trotskyists. In Trotskyist tradition. Yeah. Where basically you, you go from having a worker state that has like an administrative apparatus, which, of course, you know, if you're not you know, a, a extreme you know, anarchist, you know, you kind of think it's necessary, but to something where you have like the state apparatus that has a relationship to the workers underneath it, which is kind of like flipping it on its on its head. And the real alternative to that is to actually have inputs and pressures um, in civil society on the state, and that comes through more democracy. So at the time, in other words, when... And it's certainly not compatible with a ban on party fac- internal party factions. Yeah, a party state might be justified in a certain period, right? You could say that in the Civil War and the immediate Reconstruction period, like the U.S. essentially like was run by the Republican Party. Right? Sure, sure. Um, and but it was uh, during the Civil but War, it was a state of, but it was an emergency. It, it, they were emergency wartime rules. It was a state of exception that that ended in terms of like restrictions on habeas corpus and whatnot. Whereas within in in Russia, the state of exception became the the norm of political rule. Exactly. Exactly. So I think this is the thing. So I kind of like lay out like, oh, you know, in many ways, like a uh, more liberal and more institutionalist kind of like interpretation of like what, like why the worst problems of the Russian Revolution could have been avoided or at least could have been mitigated by allowing democratic inputs on the one hand, but also providing kind of bedrock rights and protections and kind of like the need to set up kind of capital P politics after um, after the revolution, not just kind of before it. Um, so, you know, this is kind of my, um, you know, I dare say kind of like almost like Dewey and socialist, you know, <laughs> on, uh, on, on, on the Russian revolution. But you know, I think I should be clear that like, when it comes to the decisions, I don't mean to skirt over them. People have like been, I think one of the criticisms of the essay is that it, um, you know, I'm, don't discuss Kronstadt or any particular kind of crime. I just say that, like, these things may have been justified. Um, you know, I think some of those things, like Kronstadt, definitely didn't have to happen. Um, I think other extreme measures during the Civil War, you know, like, you know, killing the Tsarina and, you know, you know, like, all this stuff, I think, in a certain in a context of revolution might be um, uh, justified. It, it just has to be, there has to be kind of, like, norms and checks behind it and the real um uh dilemma you have in russia is the two real choices are either you have at best a military dictatorship like poland in the interwar period or you have like a really like anti-semitic proto-fascist kind of government right like fascism might have been born in russia um, not in um, not in Italy and Nazism or something like it might have been born in Russia and not in not in Germany, because not only if these other forces were to defeat the the Bolsheviks or defeat kind of the all the different radical groups that emerged after the February Revolution and and, and took uh, took power would have involved like 
massacring, disenfranchising with hundreds of thousands and millions of people. So a far greater scale of what happened after the um, 1905 uh, revolution. So I think these were the real choices on offer. And when the Bolsheviks first took power, they did enact like a really democratic, um, you know, program. And do you do you think that if to toss out a impossible counterfactual, if it hadn't been for the context of counter revolution, well, of war and then counter revolution, that democratic norms and kind of pluralistic norms could have been established or would have been? I think that there, there's every reason to believe that Russian civil society was capable of developing and having pluralist norms. In other words, like, you know, this is a civil society that, that gave you all these socialist groups with largely democratic kind of demands. They gave you, like, this network of, like, agitation in newspapers and public discussions and Soviets and, and whatnot. So I, I, think, I think these norms could have, uh, could have developed. I think they actually existed. Uh, I think that's one... One thing, like after the revolution and between February and, and October, uh, Russia is the seat of the most radical democracy the world has ever has ever seen. Um, now, I think one thing that always complicates the view of like bureaucracy and its rise is occasionally people um, who make arguments similar to, to me fail to recognize the way in which bureaucracy sometimes isn't snatched from people. Sometimes they just give it up. They cede it. Um, you know, after a long union struggle, you know, often people don't want to just stay mobilized, right? They want to go back to their, their families. They want to, you know, they, they want to, they, they tell the trade union bureaucrats, like, hey, take care of this for us, right? After their interest, of course. They don't screw us over. People actually yeah. don't want the revolution to be an endless meeting because they have other shit they'd rather do. Exactly. But I do think, yeah, those norms could have developed. And I think, to be honest, there's, there's a real chance occurrence within the Bolshevik Party itself um, uh, would have like advocated uh, some of them. Um, so in other words, there is this question of why would a bureaucracy work to undermine itself? And, you know, in other words, like once you give up these rights, um, you don't have this like a vibrant civil society. So, of course, throughout the 20s in Russia, there's tons of arts and culture. Those, those things go unimpeded. Um, like why, why would they give it up? I think actually the interesting historical analogy is really the dissolution of the Soviet Union and like the fact that well in fact Gorbachev and other reformers were um, you know ceding a lot of um, you know a lot of power um, to um, um, you know for no real material reason you know I think I think yeah there there's um, you know that that does happen from 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 time to time but you know the the real dilemma for me is. Um, is not just the the simple counterfactual of, you know, um, if only in this year this was passed or this wasn't done, everything might have turned out better. We don't actually, you know, you can't prove any of that. You know, we don't, we don't actually know anything like that. Um, but the thing is just to describe and know the history with all its, like, nuance and, and complexity. So it's not a matter of, like, I'm rooting for Marta, I'm rooting for... Lenin, I'm rooting for Kamenev or, or whatever, you know, it's just like, let's understand the history, let's understand the dilemmas, let's even understand the dilemmas of, of Stalin, right, and why he was trying to so quickly um, industrialize, why he felt in, um, like an encircled Russia couldn't, couldn't um, advance to socialism, um, you know, and the slow, cautious approach that Bukharin, um advocated and whatnot, just to 
you know, just explain, you know, history without kind of like moralizing. And I think often on the left, we want to read history um, through kind of a, a Manichean like um, a lens. And we want to just pick good guys to root for and bad guys to despise. Um, so uh, in many ways, like besides for that point that I made about the need for institutions and rights and whatnot, you know, a lot of what I was writing uh, was just descriptive. Um, and there's a lot of other, you know, essays um, in the um, in the issue that go uh, further on certain points. I think Vivek um, Chibber's piece at the end of the the issue is more programmatic. Um, Dan Finn writes about uh, Soviet foreign policy. Megan Erickson explains how really advanced um, education, early childcare um, in the Soviet Union um, was in the 1920s. Um, so there's, there's a variety of other, you know, other things that, you know, kind of work as, as compliments, but, but yeah, this is my, my, my contribution was very, very, uh, uh, dry and descriptive. Even if it's via description, I, th- I think you do make some key points that I'm very partial to around the importance of individual and collective political and civil rights vis-a-vis the state. Cause it, 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 it does trouble me how on the left, sometimes those are seen as, proprietary values of, of liberals that leftists shouldn't have an investment in. And um, that yeah, always crazy. hits me in a really, it uh, sounds very dysto- dystopia making to me. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is like liberals are the worst defenders of these things. They, they one never really brought them about, right. They were always brought up from below for the workers movement and they'll do a terrible job, you know, defending them. <laughs> um, so I think we need a, you know, embrace these things. And, and also just like, again, like there's policy today when we use that word, we're, we're just thinking about like DC wonks that we like just personally despise, right? I think a lot of Jacobin has been built on like, just like disliking uh, the, the, you know, the, the culture and worldview of a lot of these types. But, you know, in a revolutionary state or even in a, even in a social democracy, like policy takes on a different hue because it's like, it's the working class itself and its organs and its parties, like deciding how to, you know, represent the interests of the workers, how to bring things to life, how to improve people's lives. You know, even even in developmental, um, post-colonial developmental states, there's a lot of these um, these uh, debates. And, and, you know, I think you really need to have a firm grasp of, of not just politics or education or propaganda, but um, but policy. Um and sometimes people um, read that to just think that it means staying within the confines of capitalism or not thinking about transcending it or overcoming it. But, you know, I think it's it's all really relevant. Like in, in places like, you know, Ecuador, Bolivia today, you know, we all have um, our, you know, share of disputes with the, the, the governments um, there. But, you know, that's a good case of, of you know, debates over over policy not really, um, you know, being kind of a, a neoliberal guise to depoliticize things, but actually furthering political arguments and political debates. One thing I liked in your, your essay a lot was that you wrote about how Lenin wasn't being disingenuous when he wrote that under socialism, the state's repressive apparatus would dissipate and wither away, that it wasn't um, a authoritarian wolf in libertarian socialist utopian sheep's clothing or whatever that phrase is it was it's really what he believed but uh yeah, sheep's clothing you, you know all those all those like nice hats and you know scarves and <laughs> but, uh, but yeah 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 no i um 
think I think there were just honest mistakes made, and they didn't, you know, they were put into a, a situation where they, um, I mean, they, I guess it wasn't the ordination of history. No, they, they took advantage of an opportunity to try to make something better out of just chaos and war and misery. And, you know, 13 million plus people had just died in the Great War, which is still ongoing, right? They thought that they could not just end the Great War, but, you know, every single war that will happen after. And who knows how bad they could have got, right? So in a way, they foresaw World War II, right? They foresaw, like, the the extreme depravities of Korea and Vietnam and all this other stuff, right? Like, you know, in a way... They yeah they they rolled the dice to just try to end it all right and if they thought that you know in a red terror killing fifty thousand people to maintain power to survive as that example to spread the revolution west was was worth the uh, the price of the alternative again like it's it's hard to um to just completely uh, denounce them right but but then again you know I think as has uh you know democratic socialists as people um thinking about the u.s today um i think we need to know this history but we need to um also know the other attempts of taking state power and governing in the interests of workers um in the west and a lot of those attempts are you know are in social democracy in the nordic countries and other places and i kind of just want to move beyond um just everybody reading in their their own tradition. Like I want more revolutionary socialists to to read about social democracy and it's um we're ran into their pitfalls and I want more social democrats or more democratic socialists or more Bernie Sanders supporters to like read about the Russian Revolution too. Um because I think whatever comes next um will kind of be beyond some of those very strong, you know, the dichotomies between you know, revolutionary socialism and reformism, you know, especially in an era like today where state legitimacy is so high, it's hard to imagine, like, you know, a couple hundred Red Guards, you know, taking over a country of 150, you know, million people. Um, and, um, yeah, and on the other hand, it's really hard to imagine a robust program of social democratic, you know, reform when the... Um, uh, actual organs that made it possible to begin with, the workers' movement, the you know all these other things are just completely um, um, uh, dissipated uh, today. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like we need to be studying like a, ver- a a variety of traditions as contemporary American leftists. And one in in, in one thing about these two traditions, the the revolutionary tradition and the social democratic uh, tradition that your article made me think about is that. Conservatives, of course, are are the party of order, but that doesn't mean that the left should should fetishize disorder and rupture necessarily, um, because what the Bolsheviks confront they did not create the disorder they 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 took advantage of it and responded to it. I think is one thing. Oh, I yeah, our, our goal is to, like reinstitutionalize, um, you know, a new order, but one that's democratic that allows kind of change and allows kind of true popular expression. It's not a constant state of of uh, flux because, you know, people get exhausted. You know what I mean? And people... Uh, and die. People... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And people... But, but people want to, I think... Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think the key lesson of the Bolshevik Revolution is partially that, you know, people are capable of engaging in these discussions about their lives and the course of the world and 
and, you know, all these the parts of society that become naturalized to people, that in fact, at certain moments in history, um, these natural facts about the world like, get called into question. So, like, you might have been, been a, a, a poor peasant, you know, on a, a plot of shitty land in Russia for, like, hundreds of years. Uh, then all of a sudden, you know, in the course of a few months, like, your lot in life doesn't seem like it's destiny. It seems like it's the result of just, like, 100% politics, right? And you have a chance to change it. You know, you, you, you like, like, I think this is this is one of the, the key positive lessons of, of all these revolutionary um, experiences and attempt is the fact that, you know, it's, it's not normal for a group of people uh, to have to subordinate themselves to another group of people. And that is the defining characteristics, I, I believe, at least, uh, you know, as a, as a Marxist, of the world we live in uh, today. You know, it's a, the fact that for so many people, like, they're going to, like, live and die in, like, factories and, or in, like, you know, poverty, you know, and, like, whatever else, um, you know, uh, they have inside them, right, are, is never going to be able to be fully um, expressed, right? And... Um, you know, this is a situation that we should remain kind of outraged at. Um, and we should kind of imagine that these natural conditions will one day again be politicized. And we don't know in what context or exactly how that will happen. You know, I, I lean towards thinking that a lot of the lessons of, the, of, of social democracy, a lot of the lessons of, of those attempts to reform conditions um, are more relevant in our era. But um, at certain moments, you know, um, that's kind of a misquote of Lenin, but uh, and I'm going to butcher it again, but it's kind of like history moves at different speeds, right? Sometimes, like, you know, it, it could seem like uh, nothing changes for decades, and sometimes, like, um, in days and weeks, you know, a month, a year's worth of, uh, you know, change happens. Let's hope we get uh, some of those years of change in the, a matter of days or weeks sometime soon. Baskar Sankara, thank you very much. No, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. Baskar Sunkara is the editor of Jacobin. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said in the time capsule, he left warning Lenin to warn everyone else about Stalin. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually two, but for the next few weeks, just one. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. So does telling your friends. If there's an episode that you particularly like, please tell people about it in person, on Twitter, on Facebook, whatever. Please make propaganda for us. It's all very much appreciated. And please find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution. We need your support and are grateful for it.